Don't avoid cliches. They are cliches because they work. George Lucas. It is often said that the load-bearing wall of all fantasy universes is that of trope and cliché. Using analogies of the modern world and the era they are written as paint, brushed upon the canvas that forms its characters, stories, and themes. However, even the lack or lack of intent of allegory and analogy in storytelling sometimes leaves a vacuum and lets the devil in through the choir door, so to speak. After all, the other side of authorial intent is how a piece of fiction reflects a mirror at its reader. We see ourselves in our favorite stories, relate to fiction and fantasy, and search for meanings in these works that, in turn, give sense to our own lives. A perfect example is the Lord of the Rings series by J.R.R. Tolkien, a fantasy work often considered to be the progenitor of all modern sci-fi and fantasy. At the time, and to this day, the Lord of the Rings is usually charged with the crime of portraying the quote-unquote mongrel race myth, and the idea that fantasy races are nothing more than analogs for the races and tropes of our real world. In Tolkien's own words, I cordially dislike allegory in all its manifestations, and always have done so since I grew old and wary enough to detect its presence. And while that's all well and good, this doesn't stop people from reading the runes however they want and using personal interpretation, meaning it's a hop, skip, and jump to go from orcs are a dark-skinned mongrel race that came from the mud and eat babies to black people are orcs and look how uncivilized they are. The passage of time, in addition to healing all wounds, also makes us collectively forget what has come before, sliding the goalposts and eventually making what was old new again. It's why we have the adage that if you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it. This is no more true than with fiction, fantasy, and the way it is used to reflect society at any given time. Now, you may be wondering why I'm talking about all of this in a World of Warcraft podcast, and more to the point, if you're saying to yourself that you didn't sign up to listen to a history lecture, then hey, feel free to check out now. Specifically, today we are going to be talking about the goblin race in World of Warcraft, and why we will go into the origins, background, and current standing in Azeroth. I just don't think we can talk about goblins without talking about its most uncomfortable question. Is the racist portrayal anti-Semitic and racist? It's a loaded question, and one that we are going to require a dive into the history of anti-Semitic tropes, the portrayal of Jews in fiction dating all the way back to the Bible, the modern conundrum high fantasy franchises currently face in the portrayal of race, and looking for answers as to whether the goblins of Kazan, as portrayed in World of Warcraft, rely and perpetuate harmful tropes. And if you're wondering where all this comes from, I will tell you. In the past few months, you've heard broadcasts from Kalimdor Public Radio coming through the show. And while working on one of the voices, specifically the goblin, I asked my wife if my goblin voice was offensive. And she shrugged and said, maybe. And that's kind of been in my brain ever since, especially as a non-Jewish Gentile who is now going to attempt to navigate the... Uh, turbid and murky waters that come along with trying to talk about this stuff. So today on Essence of Azeroth, we are going to look at the goblins of World of Warcraft, 
their place in the narrative and try to answer the question of whether or not the race perpetuates a harmful stereotype? And if so, how do we rationalize that as fans of this fantasy universe? Strap in, we're going on a ride, and time is money, friends. This is Essence of Azeroth. Today's episode is brought to you through the generous support of our Patreon subscribers, including Josh, Kelly, Bergen, Melissa, Otto, and Brooke. Be like the cool kids and support the podcast with added benefits like access to our Discord and our Horde Guild on Asgalore by visiting www.patreon.com forward slash essence of Azeroth. And now, a short word from our sponsors. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to Kalimdor Public Radio. Uh, hey there, folks. This is Laura Licklock, and you might know me better as the voice of KPR. I've been given this time to talk from the heart, so to speak, about a topic that has been heavy on my mind as of late. In light of our new change in leadership, with not only my main man, Gazlo, being the big goblin cheese, but also this new horde council that we've got. Uh, also, if we're being honest, we have air to fill, and that's already been paid for, and ain't nobody heard from Gordok for a few weeks. Far be it from me to turn down time that someone else bought, am I right? <laughs> Anyways, I'm a simple guy. I lived here down in Ragefire in a nice apartment. Got a view of the magma worms, a clean bathroom, and a mattress full of moolah. Life is alright. I'm not what you would call a typical goblin because, if we're being honest, I'm terrible with machines. And if you think that a goblin born without a wrench in his hand made him the black sheep among his 30 or so brothers and sisters, you'd be right. But weirdly enough, I'm good with people, and I like to talk, so here I am on this Hearthstone radio station we got. I'm proud of my work. Which is why it's hard when people don't let go of old stereotypes, even when they're your friends. For instance, the KPR crew was out to dinner down in the Valley of Strength last week, and when it came time to pay the bill, they were all looking at me like I could just add it up in my head. And if you know me, I'm terrible with math. So my boss says, aren't all your people auctioneers? And no, it kind of hurt to be honest. And this was coming from an orc, a guy I really like. Would he get mad if I asked him if he's still drinking demon blood? Maybe, maybe not. But I'd never just assume or say something that I think might hurt the guy's feelings. 
Also, he is huge, and I do not want to be turned into a bloodstain. My point being, we're in a new era here in the Horde. We're all doing our best, and the reason I'm here is that the Horde don't care what you look like or what you've done. You'll get a fair shake to be a good person and to help all us misfits out. After all, we're all in this together, and along with even a few of those Alliance schmucks, we can make Azeroth a better place. Alright, my time is up, and like I always say, time is money, friends, so back to our regular programming. Thank you for your time, and please enjoy the next show, The Spirit Healer, with Priest Deirdre Mesta. Let's talk about the Goblins of Warcraft lore, which has changed a few times as the game universe has shifted from RTS to tabletop RPG to MMO, and now as part of the front-facing franchise of Warcraft. Goblins are a largely neutral race of small greenish humanoids found in all corners of the globe. Wherever there is a deal to be made and something to be blown up, you will find a goblin. And while not added to the game as a playable race until Cataclysm, goblins were actually considered as a player race for Vanilla WoW along with the Naga. However, two problems arose for the developers. First, the goblins already appear neutral, and at the time they didn't have a plan to distinguish between an alliance and horde goblin. Would they be able to talk to one another in-game? How would that affect overall player communication? Second, it would require a ton of extra work, as the goblins had a unique model with all their own style and substance, and as the developer leads put it, they just didn't have the time or manpower in the beginning to essentially create a ton of original art and models. So the goblins stayed as a neutral party, serving both Alliance and Horde while also popping up here and there as enemies. This was most easily seen in their neutral goblin towns, such as Booty Bay, Gadget Zan, Ratchet, and more. In fact, back in the day, this neutrality was enforced, and a good way to get killed by guards was to try and start any kind of fight in a goblin town. It usually meant that you could be safe from most harm if you were a low-level player, and I will admit that playing on a PvP server on a 32k modem back in the day, I often used places like Ratchet in order to find some place to hide. This also plays into the WoW version of goblins portrayed as merchants and effective if not dangerous engineers. The goblins of WoW view all life from the lens of status coming from material goods and money. They're loyal, but only as loyal as far as the coin stays flowing, and focused on the here and now. Where gnomes are somewhat futurists and trying to solve the problems of tomorrow, goblins seem extremely focused on the issues of here and now, not worrying about the past and not expecting the future at any time. Gnomes are Tony Stark, the goblins are Norman Osborn. Yes, enjoy that pun. 
WoW goblins also play into the TV tropes trope of our goblins are different. Original goblin tropes in fantasy and folklore portray goblins as pure evil, but so small and ineffective that their evil acts are humorous. Like a small dog that won't stop biting your ankles. Seen as tricksters and low-intelligence followers, the high fantasy goblin of the modern era wouldn't come around until Tolkien's The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings were the long-eared, short, green, big-nosed monster we typically think of when we think of goblins finally appears. This would be extrapolated further with the creation of Dungeons and & Dragons and Gary Gygax, the creator, using Lotor as the building blocks for D&D and describing goblins in the first edition D&D book as having a tribal society, the strongest ruling the rest, allowing fealty to the goblin king. In fact, Gygax borrowed so heavily from Tolkien that the writer's estate sued Gary in 1976 for copyright infringement. The suit was eventually thrown out as Gygax successfully argued that words like goblin, orc, hobbit, and more were all part of the public domain. However, a show of good faith was exchanged, and he did change some of the names, such as turning hobbit into halfling, balrog into balor, and ent into Tregant. The focus of goblins being obsessed with money is something that is part of goblin folklore stories, but also something that wouldn't really happen in popular high fantasy until around the time of Warcraft, and I mean original Warcraft, and those types of tabletop games, and the advent of RTSs, and this is really when you started seeing that being used more. Early folklore stories portrayed goblins as obsessed with thievery, with first stories popping up in the 13th and 14th century or so, and derived from the medieval Latin of gobelinus, used to describe being a rogue or knave that lives in a rock or hole. Scottish and English folklore make great use of the goblin tropes, with one of the earliest stories being The Benevolent Goblin, a 13th century knight's tale about a goblin who uses a magic goblet to help thirsty knights on their journey. As well as a 14th century story, The Goblin Pony, a French tale about goblins that use disguises to rob and steal children, and this was reprinted later in the 1900s. Warcraft goblins pull a little bit of everything from all of these tropes. Being greedy, but being greedy in a fair way. Being tricksters, but never harmful. And being a bit dim-witted, but typically good-natured. So now let's talk about their origins and background in the actual game, as there's actually quite a bit of ground to cover. The story of the goblins starts with the Keepers, who were made by the Titans. <laughs> you knew that was coming, right? <laughs> the Keeper Mimiron appears to be the one responsible for the creation of the goblins, as he began experimenting on a tiny humanoid race called the Pygmies, which you can see sometimes as an enemy most prominently in Oldham, and using the mineral Kajamite to transform and enhance this native species. This not only transformed the goblins physically, but also made them super intelligent and crafty, suddenly creating an entire race of technologically enhanced drug addicts, as without the effects of Kajamite, they wouldn't keep their intellect. This would be used against the goblin race time and again, most notably when Deathling used the goblins to not only help create the dragon soul artifact, which was created by a goblin engineer, but also after the fight against the aspects that left Deathwing falling apart and bleeding. 
literally put back together by the goblins with adamantite plates. However, over time, the Kajamite would run out, and the goblins, while still smarter than they were, found themselves reverting from that intellect. It's best described as a lack of focus, like Kajamite was really good ADHD medication. Goblins are brilliant, but struggle to stay on task and focus on one thing for too long, meaning that a lot of their inventions are either half-baked or not fully tested for safety. It's this lack of Kajamite that would lead to the goblin enslavement by the Zandalari Empire shortly after the Sundering. Originally, the trolls and goblins had a trade agreement. The Zandalari could mine Kajamite for their ceremonies from the Undermine, the home of the goblins in the South Seas, and the goblins would get paid in galleons, coins of pure gold. However, the trolls soon discovered that the goblins were sitting on a literal unending resource of the stuff and opted to just enslave them. This would last for thousands of years, until 100 years before the Dark Portal's opening and the goblin slaves would revolt, having been breathing in Kajamite dust for decades and slowly building an arsenal of death weapons used to take their freedom. And it's here that we see the first formations of the trade cartels, kind of the hallmark of goblins in WoW, because the various factions of goblins couldn't agree on who was going to be leader, so they just start killing one another. So after weeks of slaughtering one another, a truce was finally called with a conglomerate of the various trade cartels electing trade princes, who would essentially call the shots in regards to each faction's type of work trade, construction, engineering, mercenary work, so on and so forth. This brings about the Goblin's trademark neutrality, offering to work with whoever has the biggest offer. This includes working with the original Horde back in Warcraft 1, as the orcs used gold stolen from Stormwind to pay the Goblins, and seen again later with Sylvanas' Horde and Trade Prince Gallywix. However, this mercantile work has a strict code for the goblin people. Never cheat your customer. If you're paid for a service, you do that work. This is why the goblin towns in WoW were considered safe havens and PvP violence wasn't tolerated. The goblins may take a better deal, but they would never break a contract. And this is where I think we make the distinction that goblins in WoW aren't just stereotypically greedy. Their entire culture system is based on respect of what is owed and what they owe others in return. This is why I think it's great that goblin player characters are allowed to be warlocks and shamans and priests, literally paying the spirits and the holy light and entering into trade agreements with these supernatural forces. It makes perfect sense to me. This also plays into my favorite bit of goblin lore. Uh, their beliefs on the afterlife, which is called the Everlasting Party. Goblins believe status is everything, which is why their funeral practices are all about the biggest, most extravagant funeral party ever imagined. The goblin is buried in the ground with their most valuable possessions that they take with them to the Everlasting Party, with the funeral service being a read out loud list of the deceased's assets. It's also just a time of generosity, as goblins are expected to bring a gift to place in the coffin, meant as a reflection of their social standing. And then the coffin is closed, and the goblins all dance on top of the coffin in order to help usher the deceased into the everlasting party. 
The dead goblin also plans their funeral ahead of time, picking out everything from the musicians to the refreshments to like just every small detail. It's it's a really interesting, like neat uh, bit of lore, I think. And this also ties into the greatest goblin superstition of the uninvited guest coming from a short storybook released in 2021 called Folk and Fairy Tales of Azeroth, which I highly recommend. And it details a hungering, haunting spirit that causes goblins who get too greedy and attempt to cheap anyone out to be overcome with this just overwhelming guilt to give away all of their possessions, leaving them with nothing. And this plays out in the story of a trade prince who brought fake gold coins to a funeral, placing them with the deceased. And this was seen as a break of decorum and greedy. So despite being focused on the possession of stuff, goblins tend to be extremely generous in some cases. Also, like I said, the, the Folk and Fairy Tales book is extremely cute, and I recommend you track it down. This dichotomy of being obsessed with stuff, but looking down upon being greedy is seen a lot, and proves as an example about goblin morals, and just the fact that they exist. In regards to the traitorous trade prince Gallywix, as mentioned earlier, goblin engineer Grizzik regards Gallywix as the worst that can possibly be said about goblins. Cunning, selfish, arrogant, completely ruthless, and without remorse. Which is why part of this Gallywick story now involves him being a mercenary and being in the Shadowlands, once part of Sylvanas' inner circle, and now on the run and working with the Void Cartels. One of the things I'm looking forward to about this new era of peace in the current lore between Alliance and Horde is that it might actually allow goblins and gnomes too to be more than just quirky death machine creators of the war machines for both factions. Both for too long have just had no other role in the story than providing technology and being fodder, with the worst of it seen in Battle for Azeroth. Like our good friend from the radio, Loro, it's time for them to find themselves and be something more. And I suppose only time will tell if they get that shot. But for now, it's time to answer our bigger question and have a talk about race in high fantasy. So get ready. Are goblins anti-Semitic? Is it a racist portrayal? More to the point, what conclusions do we jump to and answer for if we think that the answer is yes? I think back to that quote from George Lucas that started the show, especially in regards to Watto, the Toydarian from Star Wars Episode One. For folks that don't want to come to grasp with it, the inner monologue goes something like, well, Watto isn't anti-Semitic, he's just obsessed with money to an evil degree, and has a giant hooked nose, and speaks in a vague accent. But that doesn't mean it's bad, right? We've all heard people make those arguments. And yeah, that is a bad faith argument that can and is made. However, the more fair analysis to come to in this is maybe saying that George wasn't thinking too hard about all of those character traits coming together. 
or he was basing Watto on something in fiction that he had seen or read or knew about from before, and once again, wasn't connecting the dots or thinking too hard about what that portrayal says of and to people of Jewish faith who have faced these kinds of expectations about who they are and how they act for, well, a long, long time. There are examples of creators using these tropes and expectations as subversions of said tropes, the most prominent being Mel Brooks. A Jewish man who served in World War II, Brooks' poignant use of his own background and the pain suffered by Jewish people at the hands of Nazi Germany is often used both as an example of writing Jewish material for a Gentile audience and sadly, also used as an aha moment for people making bad faith arguments. Like how you couldn't make a Mel Brooks movie today because we're all too sensitive and he'd be cancelled, which, boy, just isn't anywhere near the truth and ignores so many steps. So let's retrace those steps and attempt to answer the question that brought me to this episode. Are the goblins in World of Warcraft anti-Semitic? To do so, we need some guiding metrics on what qualifies, which is where I turn to writer and former director of the Anti-Defamation League and former board of trustee member of the Museum of Jewish Heritage, Abraham Henry Foxman, who wrote about the six facets of anti-Semitism based on economical myths, as followed. All Jews are wealthy. Jews are stingy and greedy. Powerful Jews control the business world. Jewish religion emphasizes profit and materialism. It is okay for Jews to cheat non-Jews. Jews use their power to benefit, quote-unquote, their own kind. We'll attempt to answer these questions through the lens of World of Warcraft, while also looking into the source of some of these myths and their most famous interpretations in order to provide some kind of background. But... Before we can talk about economic myth, we have to talk about the more obvious root of Jewish hate, which comes from Christianity and more prominently today in the case of America, right-wing nationalism. It would be easy to boil down the argument to Christians are taught that Jesus Christ was put to death because of the Jewish people according to the Bible. And yes, that story is part of it, and it is often framed like that depending on what type of Christianity you were either brought up in or are still currently in. But if we look at the Bible, the Jewish people are long-suffering for multiple reasons. Once in slavery, then free, but constantly persecuted wherever they went, there's a long history of this, much of which gets rewritten after the Roman takeover of the Middle East and the Romans' attempts to snuff out any religion that wasn't theirs by sowing dissent within the ranks. This is also another example of Jewish people being accused of greediness or being obsessed with money. For example, the Apostle Matthew, depending on which book of the Bible you read, was said to be a tax collector before giving up his vocation and following Jesus. In the more conservative circles, this story gets changed to fit a narrative that a so-called corrupt Jew can be saved by Christianity. In the recent TV series, The Chosen, which is from a 
very right-leaning, conservative uh, television production company that kickstarted a TV series about the life of Jesus up to his crucifixion. It's a story about the days of Christ before that, and Matthew is portrayed as an autistic Jewish man who turns his back on his people to become a tax collector of Rome before being convinced to follow Christ. Which, there are a lot of problems with The Chosen, and yes, I have watched all of it except for the most recent season, but it's more indicative of how narratives within the faith have never helped matters. Honestly, this could be, and surely is, a podcast series all its own, and we're not here to talk about Jesus. So for our use and in regards to the wider realm of anti-Semitism, economic myth is where the most power and fear are created. So, myth number one, all Jews are wealthy. Once again, this is related to some Jewish people turning their backs on their people and faith during biblical times in order to work as tax collectors or merchants for Rome, sometimes against their will, sometimes because it was the only option. This also relates to general, ancient, religious-based anti-Semitism. The root of this, according to writer Derek Pinslar, is twofold. The idea that Jews are quote-unquote savages and incapable of honest labor, and that Jews are part of a secret cabal seeking world domination. Now, How does that apply to the goblins of WoW and how they are written in-game? I think this requires us to break down the goblins' motivation for gold and the race's overall value system, which, as we said before, is centered less on greed and more on status. Goblins want to be somebody. They want to be known. Why is that? You could argue that their decades of subjugation under a rich and powerful Zandalari tribe, or being labeled as traitors for helping Deathwing, both fall under these criteria. But to me, it reads more of that the goblins are wanting to find a place in the world where they belong, having spent so long either as chattel or as outcasts, or even in general just seen as like the weirdos that you only go to if you have dirty deeds that need done dirt cheap. But more to the point, not all goblins are wealthy. A majority of them are not, in fact. The trade princes that represent the cartels rose to such a role because they were willing to be the worst of the worst, and it's something that has doomed the goblins up until only recently. Honestly, the fact that the goblin people aren't able to focus on one thing at a time has probably kept them from being organized enough to strike out on their own and claim more. But what about how goblins are viewed within the world, like the lens that other characters narratively use? Are they seen as being wealthy by other Azeroth denizens? I don't think so, really. After all, this is a world built on middle-aged sensibilities, and in this world, wealth is often measured in land. Yes, goblins control some cities, but those cities are seen as neutral ground, some of the few locations in Azeroth where each side is on equal footing and you can be promised to be, prote to be protected. To be blunt, I think goblins are seen more as support structure and as lackeys than they are as being the main driving force behind anything. So, no, overall there is not a myth in WoW that goblins are all wealthy, nor have they portrayed that way to the player. 
being merchants and having some buffs and racial abilities based around currency and making trading easier doesn't denote anything in the same way that the spirit of humanity racial passive for humans or the cannibalism racial for the forsaken does. It's more of a narrative use, and it's not really, I, I don't think, used as an overall trait statement. So we can combine the next few myths all into one. Are goblins stingy and greedy? Is it okay for a non-goblin to be cheated by a goblin? And do goblins use their own power solely to benefit their own kind? All of these exegetical myths within WoW all get blown up at once based on what we've already said about the goblins. Goblins are focused on money and possession, but it's less about the stuff and more about the status. Like we said, a goblin would never cheat a customer or back out on a deal that's already been agreed upon, as those are seen as major faux pas in the goblin hierarchy. I also have to believe that this is how the goblins are viewed in world also. Well, they're annoying and loud and they charge a lot, but they're fair. Feels like how an overwhelming majority of people view the goblins, but I will also say that there is some danger in a statement like that too, because then it veers into the territory of like, oh, they're the good ones, which, once again, comes with its own connotations of still being problematic when said. But more to the point, there's a level of loyalty seen by most of the major leaders in WoW when it comes to goblins. Gazlo is on the Horde Council and is often the point man for big expeditions by the Horde. One of the most innermost agents of Alliance's SI7 is a goblin. Goblins have also refused to carry heavy artillery and weapons on their zeppelins out of keeping to general neutrality, even when they joined the Horde officially. Honestly, goblins are a common good in World of Warcraft. Yes, they blow things up, but their technology is essentially what has kept the Horde safe and in step with the Alliance. And, after all, a goblin designed Orgrimmar. But where do the roots of the rich and greedy Jew stem from in fiction? Because I think that's something that we also need to talk about in regards to this, and it gives us a little bit of perspective. There are a lot of places you could point to, um, even going back to the times of Shakespeare. The Merchant of Venice is a play written by William Shakespeare around 1596, which was seen by many as a response slash somewhat in agreeance with poet John Donne, dean of St. Paul's Cathedral in Venice and a peer of William who wrote and preached in 1624 about blood libel or the myth and accusations that Jewish people were using the blood of Christians in their religious ceremonies. Blood libel is a common thread among a lot of anti-Semitic writing, even to this day. Prominently featured in the Russian anti-Jewish propaganda, The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, written in 1903, and later adopted by American manufacturer Henry Ford, who would use them as the basis for a 93-week series of articles published in the independent newspaper The Dearborn Independent, a paper that Ford bought in 1918, as Ford believed Jewish people were starting wars for profit. He even required the Dearborn Independent to be stocked in every Ford dealership and factory. And, of course, we can't forget our modern versions of blood libel by the right-wing conspiracy theorist QAnon, believing that a conspiracy of rich actors and politicians are drinking the blood of children in order to stay young. In response to all of that, 
in their time, Shakespeare wrote The Merchant of Venice, a so-called comedy about a Jewish merchant named Shylock. This is also where the saying and adage about a pound of flesh comes from. In it, Shylock is seen as a greedy tradesman, only caring about profit and not for the lives of Christians. The play ends with Shylock being forcibly converted to Christianity and is the basis for a number of right-wing propaganda throughout time. And whether or not he realized it, Tolkien adopted some of these tropes in his portrayal of the so-called mongrel races of Lord of the Rings, which then has diffused through time, as all things do, and influence just begets influence, which eventually becomes trope, and we stop questioning them. So I think we can safely blow up these myths as well. As the only literal neutral race in WoW, the goblins aren't interested in world domination or supremacy, nor do they only care about goblins. Honestly, how would anyone get to the new expansion if the goblins were only in it for themselves? We gonna swim there? Come on. This leaves us with our last two myths, which we will once again combine. Goblins control the business world, and their religion emphasizes profit and materialism. In many ways, the goblins really only control their economy, which has been shown time and time again to destabilize and fall apart. It's sort of like that episode of South Park about how Cartman buys his own theme park so that he can be the only one to ride everything, but then all the rides keep breaking and it keeps going badly until he can no longer stand it and he can't even sell the thing. The times when goblins have tried to run their own businesses as self-focused, something always goes wrong. And I think the in-game worldview of the goblins is more that they're tough but fair business people, and not that they have a grip on the entirety of trade. After all, very few goblins are even trading vendors or auctioneers outside of the goblin cities. But once again, we are talking about the so-called like adage of, you're one of the good ones. So this can be twisted and turned around. And as for the religion myth, well... Yes, their beliefs are parsed out in materialism. They believe that you can truly take it with you when you go, but not in a way that is all about keeping it out of the hands of others. It's more akin to Egyptian burial rites and pharaohs being buried with their possessions, really. But I also kind of love the image that goblin funerals and the idea of the everlasting party paints. In my head, I see the lists of items a person owned being read out loud and a funeral mourner going, wow, they owned all of that and now I'll never get the chance to buy it from them because they're gone. I'm gonna miss them. And the idea that goblins bring presents to help the deceased in the afterlife is, in my opinion, the biggest evidence against this materialism. As we saw with the trade prince from our folklore tale, the literal biggest affront that could be made was giving the impression you were giving something incredibly rare and valuable, but instead were cheating so that you wouldn't lose out. And that goblin eventually paid with his life, going mad from the shame of it all. So, no, like, it, to come back around to things, personally, I do not believe that the goblins are anti-Semitic. However, here is the thing. This is just the opinion of one man, a non-Jew, with a loose knowledge of religion and history that wants to see the best in this thing that I love. My viewpoint is not law, and maybe it isn't the same viewpoint as, say, a Jewish person seeing a goblin character in-game and feeling that it all hits a little too close to home. And that's fair. 
and that's valid. And the point of this experiment and this episode of this podcast isn't to disprove or discount those feelings. And I'm sure these feelings have been felt by Jewish people or other minorities that have a problem with how high fantasy often feels like the story of white people and also these good monsters, which let's be honest, that is wow. Well, I think the game is doing a really good job at getting better at these things, as all of high fantasy is currently dealing with. The biggest fault levied against Warcraft in the beginning was that it was the story of the white good people in the castle versus the green, dumb, blood-drinking monsters who live in the desert. But here's the thing. This isn't a pass-fail test. We can acknowledge these things and acknowledge the pain it causes in real people, critique it, and hope for the better and still love said thing. A loose example is that I love professional wrestling. I grew up with it. It's basically the only thing I still watch on regular TV. I love the physicality, the storytelling, the drama, the silliness. But I'd be remiss if I didn't understand and acknowledge the physical toll that it takes on wrestlers, the effects of concussions on people who may not have a backup plan in life and this is all they would ever do, and the racism and classism at work in the storytelling tropes of pro wrestling. Hell, you can still cause a major argument among wrestling fans if you say that Dwayne The Rock Johnson was the first black WWF champion. And I think that says everything we need to know. All of our hobbies come with trauma built out of the real world, and we must be willing to think critically about it. Because it's about feeling empathy for those that are affected, and without empathy, we cannot grow as a people or culture. This is why I'm glad that people in the space of high fantasy are thinking about these things and trying to make them right. Like how Dungeons & Dragons is planning to remove racial abilities and statistics from the game in lieu of a new system. It's a dramatic change, but it's one that is worth the try if it makes a game more inclusive for one and all. And likewise, I think World of Warcraft is moving in a direction of being more open and inviting to all people. Whether it's the removal of male-female body type labels, increased accessibility options for the game, more visibility for those with disabilities and LGBTQ people as characters within the game, or even something as simple as creating stories about togetherness and gatherings like weddings, instead of focusing on black and white tales of morality and the humans and the monster people they tolerate against the orcs and the monsters and the weirdos who all don't look like humans. It's a big, wide world of Warcraft, and there is room for one and all. We just have to try to do our best. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>